Please do your own research. Nothing here is investment advice. But it'd be great to, well, first of all, understand more about your background and how you how you ended up in litigation finance. Yes. So, well, it is it's so weird. I'm originally from Turkey, and of course, if I said, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to be a litigation funder when I grow up," he would have disowned me. So I wanted to. So I did law in Turkey. Then I wanted to become a diplomat. I came here and I did my masters in international relations, and I didn't like it that much because my brain works in a way black and white, and I don't like politics or the gray thing. So I decided that it's not one for me. I went to Nottingham Law School, did a law conversion course in law. I got really good grades. Then started applying for training contracts. Didn't get anywhere for a while because I was coming from a different background. Then working, you know, one of the best at law firms, immigration law firm, even though I did corporate electives. But then I had work experience, started working at Stimson Harvard. While I was working at Stimson Harvard, I realized that I'm really good in numbers and I would like to concentrate more on risk analysis. Um, and I got headhunted by First Assist which is MGA of Mini Reinsurer. So I started working there in insurance department um, and I was doing after the bank insurance. And also I became a chartered insurer while I was working there. And that company bought by Burford Capital. And a few years later, Burford changed company to litigation funding company and they moved me to their funding team. So that's how I started to end up working on litigation funding. I was mainly doing insurance and due diligence. Um, from there, I moved to, I worked at Perfect Capital for seven years. Uh, from there, I moved to Gallagher's, became an insurance broker because I want to do a bit more uh, origination work and I want to use my insurance background. I did that a year and a half. And in 2018, I was headhunted by around four different litigation funders and I decided to join Batchwalk as vice president. Now I am global head. So here we are. Yeah. Right. So can you just share a bit more? So Burford actually bought First Assist, which was the MGA, and they were only doing legal yes. financing, doing legal insurance? After event insurance. After event insurance, they used to do. And that's how Burford entered in the UK market. It was the largest and most profitable after the bank insurance company. So Burford, instead of they start up their office, they bought First Assist, changed their name. And I still remember when it was Burford, then they are like, I shall put capital after that because, um, because I just saw how it started up in London and it's quite impressive. And they were in East Croydon, which was right next to Travel Lodge. And they were thinking, this is the best place to be. So, well, it's quite interesting place to start <laughs> up a global litigation founder. But then we moved to Thanks God to Chipside. Yeah. But, and so how, would, how, how does that insurance business work then? Just put, put simply what First Assist were doing. I personally think insurance and litigation funding are really similar. Because in insurance, you think if there's a risk, 
And if there is a risk, you kind of use some kind of endorsements and you do calculate pricing based on the prospects of the case, how long it's going to last and what are the risks. And that's how we used to prepare, you know, calculate premium. And in litigation funding, I review a case and I used to review around 400 cases a year at Burford. So I used to do insolvency, commercial litigation, personal injury, like arbitration. So I was reviewing many cases at one go, and that gave me a kind of eye to risk. And the only difference that insurance and litigation funding has is the recoverability. Because in insurance, I get my premium. I don't care if client gets the money or not. But in litigation funding, I recover from the damages that has been obtained from the other side. The only difference is looking at enforcement risk in litigation funding. I don't need to look at it in insurance. Mm. And the other thing is you think about the, how much damages you are going to get because we get a percentage or multiplier of the amount of money we put in. And insurance, we don't care about it because we say these are our stages and this is what we are going to recover. How was the insurance working for the legal expenses then? So what, what first this used to do? How did that used to work? Um, it was it was quite similar to here. We had uh, we used to review received cases, write an investment memo if we'd like to fund the case. We said we used to send it to Munich representatives in Munich, and if they and Van Berthold bought us, so we were also sending those documents to New York office both New York and Minimary. And if they were happy with the risk, we used to insure that risk. And if we had kind of, we used to say in underwriting, we had right to hold the pen, which means that without any approval, you can insure up a certain time, certain mm. amount. And if it was for, for instance, less than 2 million covered, we used to get approval. And it is quite yeah. similar what we are doing here, because if I like an investment here, I have to write an investment memo explaining mm. why it's a good case, what are the risks, uh, why do I think it should be provided, and what should be our terms, how do I calculate pricing. So it's really similar. Mm. Well, how many today, what percentage of, of legal funding cases so that's when a law firm brings a case to a funder to fund the expenses of the law firm what percentage of those cases are insured today roughly in the market in the uk do you think it really depends if it's a uk case and if it is a case for instance has insolvency or something then we always get after defense insurance because there's always risk of dependence costs so we use insurance in different ways so we use insurance to get after the bank insurance to cover our risk of defendant's cost payments. This is very common in, you know, competition class actions in the UK and also litigation cases. We sometimes insure our capital with a litigation with an insurance company, a substantial amount as well as a portfolio insurance. And we sometimes get insurance to cover security for cost risk. We call it anti-avoidance endorsement. So there are different ways we use insurance to hedge our risk to insurance companies rather than holding just that battery. What What's the most common? Most common is after demand insurance. Yeah. Well, and what percentage of cases do you think are actually have insurance today? I mean, it really depends. If it is a UK-based case, nearly all of them get insurance. 
If it is US, they don't need insurance because there's no risk for dependence cost. If it is continental Europe, we tend not to get it. If it is arbitration, we tend not to get it. It really depends from which jurisdiction. In UK, 100%. Why? Because you have to fund a defendant's cost if you lose. It is also, it really depends on the implications of law. For instance, in US, you don't have that kind of burden to pay the other side cost. Yeah. In UK, yeah. you do. So yeah. every jurisdiction, jurisdiction is different. Okay, so 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 really the, the insurance is really just to cover that defendant. If I lose my case, if I but I put my if I'm a funder, I put up 10 million down on the case, I obviously lose that 10 million. That's the risk. I then buy insurance to cover the defendant's claims exactly. their cost. So right. exactly. So after the bank insurance means litigation fund covers all lawyers' fees, experts' yeah. fees, whatever for the client. But there's yeah. a risk if we lose, the court might say you need to pay defendants' costs. Sure. And when you think about these competition cases, it can be up to like 30 million. So we get an insurance to cover if the cases are successful, then insurance kicks it and then pays defendants' costs and we lose our investment. So it is when you get after demand insurance, it is 100% hedging clients' costs and defendants' costs to litigation charges. Right. But how much of the... I mean, how expensive is that? How much, like, let's say if you have a 20% or 30% IRR, like, how much of that does that knock off your IRR, the case? I mean, it really depends because the insurance, uh, because we are doing, like, mitigation funding and we try to make the insurers to do stage premium, it's usually 15 to 20% upfront, and there's a backend. Backend means deferred and contingent, which mm. means that it is deferred until it comes to end of trial, and you only pay contingent based on the success of the case. If the case is unsuccessful, then we don't pay the last stage, which is usually 40%. If the case is successful, then we pay that premium. Wow, that's pretty expensive. It is. It is. AT is really expensive. <laughs> so, so if you've got like, if, if I invest, if I put 10 million in a case, and that case itself is like, I don't know, 20, 30% IRR, yeah. Minus my insurance, I get like 15% then or 20%. So it really depends. For instance, I am I am doing a 40 million portfolio case, but it only needs 10 million AT insurance. So AT okay. is calculated on the limit of indemnity, how much cover that I'm looking for, rather than right. how much investment I have done. Got it, got it. Well, and so and does that imply then that the US is a more attractive jurisdiction for funding than the UK because of that fact that you have to pay the defendant costs and you have to buy insurance? I, I, I don't think so. I think insurance is providing a really good access for these cases. And to be honest, we, are, we never had a very straightforward case. If it is so, probably they don't like to fund. So it is good for these type of cases, especially very complex class and competition cases. They can't come without mitigation funding because we have to pay for all of the class, AT provides a cushion and a cover, actually, and it protects from the defendants. Mm. How do you, I mean, just broadly, how do you find insurance companies approach litigation funding? I think they really respect us. It is, um, they, I think if you go to the insurance company directly, they will do more due diligence. But if you're a good reputable litigation funder, and I say to insurance companies, look guys, we are putting 40 million, 
non-recourse loan, which means that the case is unsuccessful, I lose all my investment, would you like to insure? And I think there's more respect than a reputable, of course, it will depend on funder. Reputable funders putting their money, insurers are more lenient, which they told us that, to insure that case, than if the case mm. was coming down directly. Because well, someone else did due diligence for them. We review the case, we talk to our investors, we get an external lawyer, and we spend probably 300,000 pounds before investing in a case to do all the due diligence. And if we say, guys, we are putting that money, it's easier for an insurance company, isn't it? So all the detailed due diligence has been done before. Yeah. Well, I, uh, the reason I ask is because there's been, maybe it's more in the US, but there's been various insurance companies that claim. You know, they don't like litigation funds because they believe that they're pushing up their claims cost and yeah, you know. But it is it is very interesting because on one side they are insurance companies they have to pay for us, but on the other hand, the insurance these insurance companies have the other arms like for instance, let's say Hitchcock or Hiscock or you know Subi or these they have after demand insurance arm and they pay for them. So yeah. it is like quite. This is how finance industry works. It is. Yeah, yeah, it has both sides. Yeah. Do you think that you know some of these insurance? Obviously, they have after the event arm, which are, which are which you're a client. The funders are the client, but then mm-hmm. other insurers are saying. I think there was a, a um, there was a report put out. I can't remember. It might be the sweet. It might have been. I can't remember the name of the the, the insurer now. They put out a report saying. Um, the funding is bad because it pushes up the claims cost and all insurers should be against it. And, you know, it, it basically <laughs> makes more, you know, it drives more litigation in the world as well. Yes. Kind of yeah. <laughs> uh, they always say that. The families always come up with that. Look, they have the same discussion in Europe and they they are trying to stop litigation funding there as well because the big companies are not happy with that. But if there's a wrongdoing, you have to pay for it. And if you're an insurance company, which I've been an insurer for a while, then you shouldn't take that risk. And insurance is risk-taking business. Mm. What's your thought on the, the recent Packard judgment? Can, uh, you, can, you, can you explain uh, that to me like I'm a five-year-old, please? <laughs> yes. Packard judgment basically says if you're a litigation founder and you want to get a percentage on DBA from clients and it's a substantial amount, your agreement is unenforceable. That's it. Because people are like talking and making it very confusing. They are saying, if you get percentage of damages, and if it is more than 40%, it's unenforceable. So what we are doing, even the decision came, which we were expecting anyway, because when it went to Supreme Court, Supreme Court judges didn't let litigation funded barristers to talk and defend the case. And we were like, oh, that's very weird, because we started on the wrong leg. Basically, barristers, that were appointed by litigation funders out couldn't even manage to say one sentence. They weren't wow. allowed. Yes. So we thought that something against litigation funders would come, come out, which it did. But litigation funding is like so changeable. So we increase our multiplier and we get the same money again. So they said, oh, you can't get DBA percentage of damages are not acceptable. And I have seen Will, William, some like lawyers love it. They are like, oh my God, is this the end of litigation funding industry? This is terrible. It's a disaster. And we were like, guys, come on, now we are going to change our litigation funding agreement. And we are going to multiplier. But two people, two 
actually can't, like two people earn lots of money from this decision, lawyers and baristas. Because we end up getting like 50 emails from lawyers saying, hi, do you want us to change your LFAs? We can help you. We are not going to charge that much. And the voices were calling, hello, would you like me to review uh, all your documents? And they're like, this is crazy. Yeah. So you just so, so, so you just tweaked, you changed your agreement? Yeah, we, did, we didn't have so many anyway. We were very lucky because we kind of tend to go mostly on multiplier. And as soon as it went to Supreme Court, we were like, let's do everything on multiplier. So we had only five litigation agreements, which were hit by that decision. And we changed the financial terms in a week, and it's all fine now. And, and so they're easily changed? You, you can easily go back yeah, and tweak them? Yeah, it's easily changed. We just changed your LFA. So, so what's your what's your feeling on that on the on the impact of this regulation then in the industry? I I have no idea. I think it was just you know trying to cause some chaos maybe, and we just thought it was a weird decision because this is a free market and all we agree it is access to justice, but it's incredibly expensive to bring those claims forward. But when we got the decision, of course we kind of expected, but we were shocked. Um, what we always have is if you're a good litigation founder, you always have plan B. We already had an action plan on place saying if this decision comes, we are going to change it to this multiplier and it's all going to be fine. And that's exactly what we did in a course of basically a few days. Didn't the clients push back and be like, well, no, no because clients need our money and all clients need that money to bring these cases forward. Because you can't, if you're forced, let's think about. Mercedes retail gate cases. The guys are trying to get ten thousand pounds per card, let's say, and you can't. These people can't bring these things forward without us actually putting our money. They were still going to get what they deserve, but the relationship is usually between the lawyer and litigation partner. How do you think regulation in the future will change the industry? I don't know. I think the, all the pricing will change. I think there were lots of people screaming about, oh my God, this is it. Litigation funding will come to an end. No, it didn't. We are actually still getting lots of really nice competition cases. We just changed the pricing. And business as usual. I think this is such a um, world, William. If you are adaptable and you always have a plan B, if anything goes wrong, mm. you will survive. But if you're a type of litigation funder, to be honest, not really know what was happening financially, don't have plans or not very adaptable, then you will be one of those litigation founders that can't exist anymore. And and, and how do you expect the IRR and to change if you switch IRI from DBA to exactly multiple? The so they didn't mention anything about IRI. IRI will yeah. be the same. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like just a, a, a kind of shock wave. But but if you can yes, change the agreements very quickly, then what's the impact? Uh, I didn't even make a comment here because everyone who knows litigation funding, everyone who doesn't know litigation funding, start putting LinkedIn posts saying, "Oh my god, oh my god," and I said, "This ridiculous. Come on, guys, you're the worst <laughs> things in the world. We just change our terms, and that's fine. We move on." Is there any other regulation you think could come in between, I don't know, the, the funder and the law firm relationship and regulating that or any other? Um, I don't know that EU is seeking to limit uh, the recoverability of litigation funding up to a certain point. Oh. And as far as I heard from my friends in Europe, it's not likely to pass the EU parliament. It is the big uh, European companies like the 
MasterCard visas or, you know, Volkswagen's and stuff are the ones who are after it saying we really don't want litigation funders. So there's one regulation is having a discussion in EU Parliament at the moment. Um, and other than that, there was a big hoo-ha about in investor state arbitration cases, if rules are coming for litigation founders and in answer trial as well, there were some changes in the rules. But when the rules came, these are exactly the same rules litigation founders were kind of, especially us, were forefront anyway, disclosure, conflicts. And they just put them on a piece of paper and we totally agree with the changes that they have done. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Visa and MasterCard. So they're actually against funders because they think they're going to bring them litigation yes but, and they but, need to pay out quite substantial amount of money or you know with Volkswagen one cases that Ethereum was funding so they settled the case because it was so clear they were lying about dieselgate emissions so they had to pay substantial amount to the clients so it's same with others because when you think about all the German and the European companies which were clearly not not clearly in some cases it's not very clear cut that's why some cases are a bit more challenging but they were misleading the public to sell more cars and now the financial uh, consequences are coming and hitting them so they are trying to use their lobbying power in EU parliament right. to block litigation funding but it's interesting because you know some part of the industry like what Burford do for example they will go and and try and unlock cases from the balance sheets of corporates but then the, these big, big corporates, I don't know, like Cisco, Visa, MasterCard, uh-huh. where, where they're doing stuff they shouldn't be, they're going to be lobbying against uh-huh. the funders. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, well, like, may, may, <laughs> let's see who's going to win. Right, so can you just share a bit more about Benchwalk's portfolio today? You know, how you how it's split between, I don't know, case type, patents, antitrust, and geography. Mm-hmm. How do you think about the portfolio? I think the the case that makes us very busy these days, like the cases that class and competition cases, because they are really meaty, really big, you know, kind of liability is decided, but you need to work on damages. Um, so we are doing a FX case. We even managed to get the mandate on the carriage fight. So we were doing a carriage fight with Ethereum. And the court said we are going to follow Benchbook. So Ethereum lost the fight. We were happy for less than 24 hours because the next day the Packard decision came. So, so we have those are the main things. We are doing MasterCard and Visa, you know, all the emission cases here. We are doing actually ESG case against water companies, which there yeah, it's a really big competition case that came by me day as well. Um, we are we have we are doing a bit of investor state cases. We have Five cases on our portfolio. It's going to be six soon. So we are closing another deal. We are doing quite a lot in continental Europe. I would say when we look at continental Europe, we are finding cases in um, Holland, Belgium, Italy, France, Germany, Spain. And me and Adrian, we are the only two litigation founders who ranked in the UK and who ranked also in Europe. So other than us, none of our competitors in UK has been ranked in Europe. So we are quite mm. doing quite a lot of work in Europe. And our US business is keeping us very busy too. And what we tend to see in US is securities actions, um, normal litigation cases. What percentage of the business of your case portfolio is in the UK versus Europe? I would say if you put UK and Europe together, because we look at it in that way, 
um, frugal based 70% of our business is still coming around here and 30% from US. But it is increasing because we just employed, not we just anymore, we employed a guy um, two years ago to kind of bring cases from New York and he's doing an excellent job. Mm. And, and is that mainly um, your funding? Is it legal expenses you're funding or are you also funding off the balance sheet, corporate, your corporate assets of the balance sheet? So we have we haven't done in-house lawyers or in-house company yet. I think it's a very difficult area to get into. But we have done portfolios. We yeah. uh, we have set up you know Palace, Natasha Harris's law firm. Uh, we have done two hundred million secondary market sale with another massive litigation funder. So we bought two hundred million of their risk into our book, and we are doing. Sometimes law firm funding, like Italy, we gave them two twenty million to invest on cases that they can have, and they have another Australian law firm, which I can't disclose their detail. We gave them a portfolio facility too. So the way we look at it is well, William. If a case comes or the portfolio comes and it's a good one, we invest in it. Mm. What's the average or median size of the investment in the portfolio? Dollars. Um, I would say average medium size is between 15 to 20 million. That's the amount of money we put on a case. And a single case, or that could be a portfolio? On a single case. But it really depends because we have some, we have one case, we put 500,000 pounds. We have one case, we put 1 million. We have another case, we put 50 million. We have another case, we put 200 million on you know, secondary market sale. So it's a wide range of cases we are dealing with. Mm. But the median, for example, if you, if you wrote them all up, like what would be the, the, the one in the middle? I think like, like um, it would be around because we did 200 million as well, like 10 to 15 million. That skews it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, well, but that, that seems still quite big, though, 15 million. I, I, focus, I think Burford, for example, they do 20 million, 25 million dollars average. How would but you then Burford, Burford says that, but Burford doesn't even start looking at the case if the damages are less than let's say, 70 million or something. But right. our starting point is if damages are 10 million, we start reviewing 10 million US dollars, we can review that case. Okay. And it can be too small for Burford because I have friends still at Burford. They sometimes refer me cases saying, I think, you know, this case seems a bit small to us because we don't have anything less than 50 million in damages. Would you like to look? And that's something that I can We are not like very strict like Burford, only portfolio, only portfolio, only massive. If a case is a good one, we like to invest in it. And it kind of gives us a spread of money coming and leaving. Because if you put a massive amount of money on one portfolio, it might take a long time to get your money back. But if you put your money in a smaller case, you know, smaller cases usually take 18 months to three years, then we can actually get our return quicker. And that 200 million case, that was a that was a portfolio. Portfolio. So it is a be bought from a litigation funded secondary market sale. How do you originate your cases? Mm-hmm. I think people, the way I originate cases is I, when I first started, I only had three lawyers that I knew, which were my friends from law school. And I just ended up going to every single event and attending everyone, getting everybody's card, emailing them like crazy. Um, and also I was like, um, I was also looking at websites and seeing the lawyers sending them cold emails saying, can we meet, can we meet? 
And it is, I'm very lucky because if you have a background on litigation funding over 10 years, what I realized is that the market has moved from some litigation funders used to have just the origination team, they used to go out, bring the cases and don't do anything else. Market likes to work with people who know what they are doing and very direct. Um, and my reputation in the market is because um, I do also due diligence. I know the documents I, I do sometimes, the you know, LFAs and the closing of the deals. So when someone talks to me about the case, I can say I can fund this, I can't fund that. And um, and this is how we work. And the big best marketing in the market is we don't even have a marketing team. We rank number one in chambers and partners. We have invested like nearly one billion US dollars. Is the reputation. If someone comes to me and I say to them, I can't fund that. If I say to them, yes, I will fund it, it will be three weeks, and they like that, they send an email straight away and they invite me to their colleagues, introduce me to their colleagues working in different law firms or a UK law firm might like me. And I was getting US cases by UK because the UK, US, UK team liked me so much. They were sending me all of their US cases too. I think the market is just, uh, market really appreciates honesty and directness and security. So 100% of your, of your cases are inbound. They come into you from referrals or from... Yes, it's from referrals and law firms. Mainly from, from law firms, yeah. Yes, it's all law firms, all referrals. When I started that bank book, I remember Adrian said, look, most of our cases coming through brokers. We want you to like change it a bit. And now when we look at the percentages of how many cases coming to us directly lawyers, to brokers, it is 80% lawyers, 20% brokers. What's the difference in the type of cases you might get from a broker versus a law firm? Uh, it is quite similar, but broker, if if it comes to broker, broker sends more than one uh, litigation funder, which we also really like to work with some brokers. You know, they do a great job. Um, but if it comes from a lawyer, that means that you already set up a relationship with them and they like to work with you. I get, really, I get WhatsApp messages from lawyers saying, I'm going to pitch for a case, Aisha. Do you think this will be fundable? If so, can we pitch together? So having an access to a decision maker via WhatsApp is great than me saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I need to ask my investment committee, by the way, 15 mm. old judges and barristers are sitting. I basically mm. say to Adrian, do you think we can fund it? and steward because they are our investment committee. Um, and I kind of know which ones we can do and which ones we can't. If I have a doubt, I straight away ask Adrian or steward. And if they say yes, that's the deal done. Mm. And I don't think anyone in the market can catch us on speed. We are incredibly quick. Do you do, you do all of your due diligence in-house then or do you have to outsource some? So initial in initial due diligence in in-house. So I review a case and we have also uh, three team members. We, we have a lady in US called Cynthia. She's our due diligence director. If we think the case has legs, we send it to her. She reviews very quickly. But when it goes to detailed due diligence, we instruct an external lawyer or a barrister in some cases if we need. Um, and they do the review for us. Uh, so, so let's say I, I'm a law firm. I send you a case, and what's the, what's the process and what's the time and the process on your end before you give me back a price or a bid? How does that work? It is really it really depends. If you it can be sometimes law firms send us like 
one page stuff and there's no damages calculation, nothing. We have no idea. So I'm like, can you send me this? Can you send me that? But let's think if it is a, let me give you a live example. I got a case on Friday few few weeks ago from a lawyer. He turned up in our office with their client. They had everything. They're like, this is the damages report. This is our memo. Here's the client. And at the end of the meeting, I said, I think I'm going to file your case. And that was it. So I look at the during the weekend, I had a quick look at the damages report, which seemed like very reliable. Send it to US, Cynthia, our due diligence director. And I got a very good feedback saying, this is, you know, this is a really good one. So let's go ahead. On Tuesday, we sent our terms. Guys came on Monday. Tuesday, they had our terms. We negotiate terms two days. And we are nearly finishing all of our LFA, signing everything today. Okay. So, I- and our external, our um, due diligence, external due diligence only lasts for two weeks. Our exclusivity is one month, two weeks external due diligence, and two weeks LFA drafting, and that's it. We really we like a case. We are really aggressive about it. And what's the external due diligence you have to do? So they actually review all the documents that lawyers send us. They are the kind of similar partners who are who has experience in the same area or a barrister. And they interview the client and the lawyer, and they prepare a six-page memo saying this is a good case or it's a bad case. And that's a funder or is that a funder partner who does that or? So he's a, for instance, let's say I have a case and I ask three DD barrister chambers, a barrister right. from there to do the due diligence for us. Okay, okay. And, and so what about if it's in a jurisdiction where you don't have expertise? I don't know if it's in the US or somewhere that's a... I mean, we have very good experience in US, but let's say it's in Georgia, we don't fund it. So we always try to go with the jurisdictions that, let's say it is like, I don't have experience in Spain, but what we did in Spanish cases, we instructed a top Spanish lawyer to do it for us. Mm. So that's totally fine. But if I have suspicion about the jurisdiction, then I won't fund that case anyway. But it's interesting because I think Burford have a lot of their expertise internally for all this DD. So I don't, I don't think they send much out externally. How do you weigh up having, how much expertise I, you have internally versus externally? I, I think different horses for different courses. Just think, William, if you have 100 people and you pay 200 grand per head, is your pricing going to be more expensive? You're in a really fancy office and um, you got two of your qualified lawyers doing it for you. Or if you have 11 people globally, you have a normal office, how it will it affect your pricing and your speed? So would, would so you say that you're... You're cheaper, cheaper than Burford then, and you price. Yeah, I say that it's our clients who said that. They said, yeah. and some big law firms actually who were working with Burford turned their face to Facebook, saying we find it very difficult right now. So it is, it is like different business structure. We always say we are a financial service provider rather than legal service provider. Some of our competitors say they are legal service provider and they employ quite a lot of lawyers. We don't want to be one of those. We want to keep the team neat and small, have the decision makers, and if I want to fund that case, then I instruct the top lawyer to do due diligence for me, and it is cheaper than paying someone 200 grand a year salary because they do that work for 10,000 pounds for me. 
Right, okay. So you you outsource the legal DD to the barrister? Yeah, the, the and chambers. also we don't have the backlog of cases that, you know, in-house people who goes into detailed due diligence have to deal with lots of cases. If I had a competition case, I go and instruct a top competition barrister. If I had investor state case, I call the US State Department and I ask them to review the case. If I have an insolvency case, then I go to an insolvency law firm and say, would you like to look at this case for me? By delegating, I think I get better quality, it's faster, and I'm not overloading people, and it's cheaper for the client. And and does the, that barrister just take an upfront fee, or does he would pay on, on contingency? Or the... No, we just pay him once. Okay, yeah, so it must be cheaper than having, I mean, about to have like 100 lawyers, you know, London and New York, they're obviously top lawyers, they're very expensive, yes. they spend and 100 the million. The office here, that, you know, it really depends, like I said before, only Bridgeway has, has the same structure. But if I think a case in Holland is good, and I want someone to review it for me, I can actually get top, uh, which we have done before, top Dutch law firm, and ask them to review it for me. And it's also the marketing side too. If I give them business, they will give me business. So when I instruct them, we had that in Switzerland, I instructed a law firm from Geneva um, to look at a case the seated in Switzerland. They came back to me and they were amazing. Then a week later, they called me to discuss four cases with me. So I gave them a work and they gave me work. But you rely a lot on their expertise to... I do, yes. Yeah. That's why it's very important for us to get a uh, kind of heads up from the client saying, yes, we are happy with them. And also we have a look at their background because we like to go and instruct someone who's really good in his area, like Stephen Fiatta in arbitration or, or you know, Patrick Purcell, head of Alan Nobri. Those are the people we go out and instruct to do due diligence for us. Mm. Oh, and, and so I guess a lot of these other like Ethereum and, and, and Augusta and some of these other struck funds or funders that I guess they do the same kind of strategy. I am not you. sure about how good they do. I mean, I know Ethereum was trying to do mainly in-house. Um, Augusta, I don't know if they exist. I If they do, probably the, what they did is at some point employed 150 lawyers and they were trying to do everything in-house. And they realized it is not cost-effective at all. Then they sacked all of them in one day. And they said, now we are going back to bench hold model. And they said that to their team members. I think it is important. There's a great value to have a lean team, which is you know, equipped by very bright people. And mm. people that you have a different stages, William. If you're an originator and you don't know how due diligence works, some of our competitors do that, then you take the case, you promise the lawyer that you are going to do everything that you can, give it to due diligence person, they ask the questions, then it goes to investment committee. These due diligence people never met in their lives before, they have once a month calls, once a week calls, then they have their own questions, then due diligence says origination, origination goes and says back to the client, and if you have like 50 monitoring team monitoring what lawyers are doing day in, day out, we don't think, but it's again a different structure. We don't think it's cost effective and it is a very good model, but it's working for some funders. How much cheaper would you say Benchwalk is? Let's say same case from uh, a law firm sending to Benchwalk and to, to Burford. What do you think the difference in the pricing would be or that multiple that you'd give? I, I can't comment on Burford because I know Burford is a bit more expensive. 
because mm. of their size and many other reasons. But all I can say is, I don't know, am I competitive crisis? So I don't want to give anything misleading. But I mm. had a few lawyers telling me that out of all the funders, you were the most reasonable. And I heard that around five times. But I didn't, of course, they can't disclose their, the competitive pricing right. because it is it is not right way to deal with But it could be, what, 10, 10 20% cheaper? cheaper. Yeah. yeah. So you've got 11 people internally. How much can you allocate, how much can you deploy per year then with that headcount? We don't have any limit. If we get really good case, so we have like over a billion assets under management right now. If you like a case, we just fund it, then we raise money. We are kind of privileged because we have a really good track record. You know, we did the Tinder case. We put 50 million. The case settled for 487 million. So everyone was really happy. And we had a quite a good, you know, track record of cases being successful and settling. We had some investors who wanted to invest and we said, no, no, guys, wait. Let's use this money first. Then we will, you know, continue raising our funds. But we don't have a limit of, oh, you can only use 100 million and then we have to wait another Years but could, but could you deploy a billion a year? Could, like, could you do, could you if we get a, a really good case, yes, definitely. Why not? If we have a, a meeting year, then we will go to market straight away, which Stuart Grant usually does our raising, and then we will invest that money and we will raise additional money straight away. Right. So, so it seems like your benchmark is more of like a well, I guess a financial more, more financial services than legal services, like yes, it is, it is, and our investors don't decide on which case we should fund or not. It's a steward and Adrian. If they say yes to a case, the case gets funded. And the investors have to put their money behind Badgeford. Right. And so you raise money based on when a case comes up, it's, you, you, you call the capital have, then? We already have the money that has been raised. So that, that money mm. is being used for it. Yeah. So we don't raise case by case basis. We already have money raised. It, it's interesting because you know it's obviously a, it's a different model to what Burford would does. They hire so many people. You know they spend a lot of money. I think they spend like a hundred million dollars a year. Is their operating costs? Yes, yes. Um, it, it's a different. It's a different model, and it has been working for Burford as well for for, for such a long time. Because they why is it working? Why, why, why is it working for them, do you think? What's, what's the advantage of that? Because we the first ones in the market, I think, and I really have so much respect for Chris Bogart, you know, John Tomalo, because I used to work with them. The guys are incredibly intelligent. They see the opportunity. But uh, from my point of view, the market is changing a bit right now because when Burford came to market, everyone, like the Harbors and everyone, there was only one structure, employ lots of lawyers, and that's how we should do and I think say, our benchmark came to market with totally different structure. And we are showing, hopefully, the competitors and the other markets, people who want to join litigation funding, we don't have to have a massive team of litigation funders, lots of offices around the world, to be a good litigation funder. People are up to speed and certainty. That's it. Well, but okay, let's say I, I, I give you this case. 10 million case, sends the bench walk, uh, you know, competition law, whatever it may be. You 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 send it out to your barrister, your competition law uh, <laughs> lawyer. They say it's great. You fund it. Let's say it's a five-year case. It drags on. How do you then, when more information comes out, it goes, to, you know, 
it gets an appeal or a trial or something happens. So really what you do is, William, there are some, again, education founders, they have groups of monitoring teams, like 50 lawyers sitting there asking questions. We don't work like that. Our relationship highly relies on trust and the quality of the lawyer. If I think the lawyer is not good, I will fund that case, even if it's the best case in the world, because I am giving my money to that lawyer. And what we do okay. is every month we get a A4 paper saying anything has changed on the case, anything should be aware of, just let us know. If the lawyer comes, nothing be just like particles of claim has been issued, it's all going fine. We just let them to do their own thing. But if you say, you know, if they say, well, did you see the expert report, there might be some issues, then we review the expert report and we actually ask lawyers to tell us what shall we do in that situation. So we had one case, for instance, it was quite weird, but lawyers managed to settle the case because they were really good lawyers. So we don't involve in lawyer decisions. My view is if I was such a great lawyer, why am I funded? There's a reason why he's a lawyer, still a partner in a law firm, and I decided to take a step back and do this work. And that's why we respect the people who got the client and who worked so hard to bring that case. And there are some of our, some of our competitors trying to act as the lawyers of the case, and they are not. So, so, so when you get this, the the original legal DD complete, that's then that that person doesn't then get involved direct throughout the duration of the case. You no, you trust the law firm. His job is only coming to this, and he's done. His job is only telling me if he was a litigation founder, he will risk his fees, and that's it. Then he's out, out of the right. finished. Okay. Then it's bankrupt and the law firm. And what we do is we get very basic A4 piece of paper saying, this is good, it's working well, and that's great. We don't nag the lawyers. If lawyers start nagging me, I probably stop litigate funding them because that means that they are not good lawyers. Don't ask me the legals. You should be the one who knows the legals. I am doing the finances. Okay. Okay, so you really trust the law firm then to... Yes, to, yes. To Otherwise, I don't fund the case team. We are kind of spoiled. We get cases all around the world. So if I don't think lawyers are a good one, I won't fund that case. Are there any cases that you think you, in your structure, you can't get access to or you can't fund? Like, I don't know, some of these bigger, huge antitrust deals or these longer cases like the... Like YPF at Burford or Cisco or some of these bigger, huge cases or anything? I mean, like, no, we don't have, we put 50 million US dollars on one case. We are doing now because competition portfolio in UK. I think the thing, instead of how much money that we require to put in a case, will stop us is the jurisdictions of a case, you know, where is it being seated? There are some jurisdictions, Burford and only Bridgeway might be comfortable. We are not comfortable. So, you know, those are the types of matters that we will actually take a step back and decide not to fund, rather than how much funding they are looking. In the worst case scenario, let's say they are looking for 150 million for funding a case, and we don't have it at that time. We co-fund within the litigation funder and we work on it still. But usually the number is not the decisive thing. The case, well, the factors that case includes is the decisive thing to stop us funding. There are some cases, like I said, Berkeley can do, and they have good appetite because they have, you know, asset tracing team, and I don't have it. So then my appetite changes accordingly. What are the main reasons that you hear law firms choosing Benchwalk over Burford? You mentioned price. I mean, it, we talked about price a bit, but more than price, some of them, you know, one, one law firm told me we were 
um, our pricing was like, okay, but they decide to work with us because they like the people that who bad folk has. We, you know, if, if they are in a problem, they need to increase the budget or something, they can give us a call and we will do it. And I always say litigation funding is a kind of human relationship business. There are some marriages come to an end, you know, last shorter than litigation funding a case. So us and the lawyers, we're in this spot for a long time. And some law firms say, we want to work with you because you are bad. I had a call with a law firm a few weeks ago and they told me we need to go to market for three because we promised our client but we want to work with you because we love the way you work. We are very open, clear, and we don't bullshit, <laughs> William. So everyone, everyone likes working with you. That's why they, that's why they send you the deals. Yes, exactly. That's why, you know, with people globally, whoever I speak to, they're like, we can't believe you have only eleven people. And eleven people, I know front office people. My front office people are five. The rest is the back office. So five people are doing this globally. I think this is a pretty impressive Company. Who do you typically come up against in the cases? Who's your biggest competitor in the UK then? I think it really, again, it depends on the type of a case and the jurisdiction. If I am dealing with a competition class action, probably I see it like hardware popping up here and there. Um, then Woodsport are doing a bit of securities cases. Um, so there's like balance sometimes involves a smallish type of case and they are interested to do the similar matters. Um, but if I am working on big investor state cases, then I am having boom on the bridgeway coming opposite to me. Sometimes if it's based in US, I'm having Parabellum, Burford Capital, who's competing against Bashfolk there. And if it is Europe, I'm having Nivarian, you know, the smaller litigation funders based on that jurisdiction and um, only bridgeway competing against us. So it really depends on the type and the jurisdiction of a case. And, and why do they why do they choose these other kind of smaller funders? How can they compete then with you know Bench or you? You're pretty cheap because the cases in Europe are smaller and they they don't need so much funding. So, for instance, in Holland they have their own litigation funder. In Sweden, I went there and I had a meeting as well. They have their own litigation funder based on Sweden. There's another funder who is like Nivalian based on Switzerland and continental Europe. So they really concentrated, concentrated on that. And again, they like to, um, the cases we managed to get Monday, they like to work with us because exactly the same reason why all UK and US lawyers like to work with us. How do you think about approaching general councils to unlock or finance their litigation rather than only rely on law firms? I think the main people we should reach out is CFO rather than GC because GC thinks in a way that like, okay, this is the law, let's deal with that. But when you reach out to CFO and talk about numbers, those are the main people who are actually interested to find out more about litigation funding. Um, I am very lucky because I'm originally from Turkey and only Turkish-speaking litigation founder in the world. Um, but my, my main job is like based here in New York. But there are quite a lot of Turkish companies calling me directly and saying, I have a case. Can you help us to organize the team? And they actually, I, what I have seen is that those kind of countries have more appetite than Western countries, GCs and CFOs. Because maybe because of the financial reasons, 
if Minimal a Turkish capital, company yeah. exactly wants to sue, um, let's say one of the states, if it's an exit, when you think about the currency difference, how expensive, they really need a funder. But when you think about Siemens, they don't need a funder. So but are you guys approaching CFOs now or are you just relying on the law firms coming to you? We, we, can't, we are just dealing with the law firms. They are bringing us, they are keeping us very busy. But I am, like, again, when I go to Turkey, I always see the CFO CEOs and GCs because there are really good cases coming up from them. And the seats are based in continental Europe and US. And I really like that type of matters. But here, personally, I want. Look, while I was talking with you, Will, you are on my phone. I got two more new cases coming to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and where do you see the the most attractive avenues for growth in the industry? Um, a most attractive avenue, I think, uh, with the cases wise. Yeah, just I guess the, where you're seeing the most attractive cases, jurisdiction or type of case. I think continental Europe is becoming quite interesting area because I know Portugal is changing their law and making competition and class and competition cases very friendly there. You know, Holland suddenly opened their doors and they were like, you know, guys, we like litigation funding. Um, the big moment, because UK is is doing very well right now at litigation funding. We are getting lots of cases. US is waking up. Uh, to be honest, when I went to US, I was so surprised how many lawyers compared to UK are less aware of litigation funding. So US is kind of changing its view. Um, I, and Europe probably will start to catch up very soon because there's lots of potential in Europe. There are lots of big companies, lots of class actions, competitions. I think the growth area will be in Europe. Mm. And, and how much securitization of, of these assets are you seeing in the UK mm -hmm. today? Like in terms of you, you, you said that you securitizing parts of your portfolio or is that still early days? Securitization, I mean, mainly it will be in the UK, 